so we are, we're in our fourth week of Advent, as Ben said, and uh, talking today a bit about re-enchanting Christmas. I think it's, uh, it's really interesting this time of year. Well, like today, we're right after church. Sarah and I are headed out to um, Kansas City to be with her family and to get, you know, Christmas just kicked off. And you have to do that, you know, when you're, when you're sharing Christmas with different families and extended families. Some go early, some go late. So we're getting ours kicked off today, which our kids are like super excited about because it's like they're, they're doing the advent calendar counting down to the 25th. And it's like, oh no, buddy. It's, uh, it's happening this Sunday for, for, for the Newman family. Um, and the great thing is we get uh, Kansas City barbecue for Christmas dinner tonight. So, yeah, pray for me as I will be praying for you and that you can enjoy that soon one of these days, I guess. Um, I, 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 uh, w- when we're there, one thing that happens is that usually it's the uh, Hallmark Channel that's played in the background, like on repeat. I don't know if this takes place at your house. It doesn't take place at my house in Manhattan. Uh, it's just kind of like some families just have these, you know, Hallmark Christmas movies on repeat, and they all, it's like all the same thing, isn't it? It's like the big city gal with the high power job needs to go back home to some small podunk uh, town that decorates Main Street for Christmas, and she meets like you know, bumps into her high school boyfriend and he reminds her how magical Christmas is and she has a hard time understanding that because she's caught up in the big city with her big job. It's like the same. It's like the same every year, right? And so I get to watch like that in the background for 12 hours straight. Um, but that's okay because I'm going to be enjoying brisket. So I don't, I don't you play whatever. But it's interesting to me that these movies, and it's not just the Hallmark movies, it's this theme of remembering Christmas and, and the deeper thing plays across different genres and themes and categories of movies. A lot of times you'll see it pop up like where the kids, like uh, we watched Slumberland with the kids recently. Um, Jason Momoa is like just a cool dude in whatever movies. It's like that's Aquaman in whatever movie he plays in. But anyway, it's, it's the, these kids that remind the adults that life is magical, that's basically what happens in these Hallmark movies is that the, the gal or the guy or whoever is reminded that there's magic that really exists in the world and the happily ever after involves them enjoying the magic together. It's the kids' movies all over again. Imagination is fun and remember, adults, what it used to be like when you were a kid. It's the same thing because, because we have forgotten the magic in our world. Our world is disenchanted. It used to be that people believed in, in, in fairies and dragons and, and, and stories like that. And, you know, we know that, that a lot of that wasn't real. But the interaction with the world from the ancient time up until the modern era is that the world is filled with mystery and wonder. And that's how people live. The Bible actually assumes that the world is magical. We might not actually call it magic, except for when the Magi show up in the Advent story. But there's mystery and wonder, and things don't make sense, and we look to God for it to to align our our reality with our expectations with the kingdom of God, right? And so in this this book I'm reading uh, called Cultural Apologetics, Paul Gould says this, the ancients inhabited a world drastically different from ours, populated with gods and goddesses, nymphs and dryads, monsters and spirits, heroes and lawgivers. Their world was not tame 
or dull. Life was a colorful adventure, a battle between opposing forces. The world was supernaturally imbued with personalities and powers. At any moment, you might be in the presence of a God. Divine judgment for sins was a constant worry. The human experience of the world was one of mystery, enchantment, and sacredness. Not so today. He continues, as the world was emptied of the divine, space and time were drained of significance. Space is viewed today as nothing more than an empty container for particles in motion. The heavens are viewed by many as a chiefly a vast empty, empty space with a humanoid God and a few angels rattling around in it, while several billion human beings crawl through a tiny cosmic interval of human history on an oversized clod of dirt circling an insignificant star. And that's a bummer when you put it like that, isn't it? That's just like, huh, yeah, people do think that. God or the gods, if they exist at all, are silent and distant. Time is divested of meaning and viewed as a commodity, greedily dispensed only if perceived benefit. Usually a personal pleasure or accomplishment ensues. It is little wonder that modern man in such a universe has aptly been described as an empty self. So while this isn't an anti-science or anti-technology stance, there's a reality that when we explain everything, it really does lose its wonder. It used to be, why does gravity exist? Why do, why do, why do things that are heavy fall to the earth? Well, God is behind that, and he designed it. And that's true, but when we discovered the theory of gravity, it kind of takes the mystery out of it, doesn't it? It's, it's no longer related to God. It's just related to physics, He continues and says this, emptied of transcendence, the human experience of the world fades to gray. Moral distinctions between right and wrong, good and evil are erased, and aesthetic evaluations of what is beautiful and what is horrid begin to blur. This even extends to the very concepts of goodness, truth, and beauty themselves. Without an underlying vision of the world as magical or mysterious, life is utterly mundane. You feel that, don't you? Without wonder, without mystery, it's just boredom. The divine fabric that holds together the warp and woof of reality is severed. When mankind no longer lives spontaneously turned toward God or the supersensible world, when to the echo the words of Yeats, the latter is gone by which we would climb to a high reality, we all must stand face to face with a flat and inexplicable world. So again, the more science explains, not that we're anti-science, but the more mystery is vanquished. Few of us realize that what, we, what is in existence is that we live and perceive reality through an imminent frame. That which is real is what we can experience with our five senses. That sums our reality, our, our experience of reality up. There's no room for God in an imminent frame because all that's, that's meaningful is in front of me. But do we see what happens when we think we can explain everything, when we can conquer any uncertainty? If, given just a little bit of time, science will give us a breakthrough, technology will create an app for us, do we see what's happening? Are we better for thinking this way, from living from an imminent frame? We thought that utopia was on the other side of technological advancement. We found that there's actually just greater anxiety, depression, and, and um, uh, meaninglessness. 
And we as a country at the same time has have, have never had as much affluence at our fingertips and as much leisure time in the midst of it. So we have more time and more money. Maybe not us, because you know everybody's like, well, I'm busy and we got all this stuff going on. But just collectively as a nation, we've never had more, much more wealth. We're the richest nation on the face of the earth in human history. And we have more disposable time. We have light bulbs and we have lights on our phone that help us see in the dark so we can stay up later and get up earlier without assistance of the sun. And we're more anxious for it, aren't we? That's what it means to live a disenchanted life in an imminent frame. There's no wonder, no mystery anymore. The, The modern lives comfortably in an empty space, empty world devoid of moral or aesthetic absolutes, a world without fixed meaning or clear purpose. Because of this, the goal of life is entirely subjective. When we take God out of it and the concepts of good or bad, good or evil, there's no explanation for what behavior should or shouldn't be uh, allowed. And when we take that away, we don't have concepts of, of goodness and truth and beauty. It's all subjective. And when we don't, we don't have a plumb line laid out pointing us towards God, we have to make up our own meaning. You have to explain for yourself and to everyone else why you exist and why on earth are you here and how could you possibly make the world a better place. It's all subjective and it's all internal in that way. This is what it means to live a disenchanted life disconnected to God. Instead of reaching for the divine, we take our quest inward. And what we find there is bland and meaningless, and we have to come up with our own meaning. So when Nietzsche said that God is dead, he wasn't making a a philosophical claim as much as he was making a consequential claim. When God is taken out of society, we have to wrestle with this, this meaningless and this mundane existence. That's what his point was. When society has killed God, the repercussions are immense for us all, okay? But here's the deal. Just adding God back into a mundane life doesn't solve the problem. When you have your overly busy schedule, your credit card debt up to your eyeballs, and you put God in in that, when he's not in the center, the the meaning from which it all flows to and from, when we try and tack God onto our board, imminent frame life, It's no wonder that he doesn't quite fit, and it doesn't quite fix everything for us. This is one reason that many of our contemporary peers who grew up hearing, be a good person and don't skip out on church, and that was the sum sum total of their evangelical upbringing, are now deconstructing that because they found that doesn't work. When you just try and be good and you do good things, but God isn't the center of your being, the meaning and purpose of your life, We're left to look for who's to blame that my life didn't turn out because there's an evangelical prosperity gospel that says if you do good things and you go to church and maybe you give some money every once in a while, God will bless you and you'll have a great life. Many of us are finding it didn't work out that way. Sometimes life sucks and who's to blame for that? And usually we lay it at the feet of God when it's actually that that evangelical prosperity gospel that's to blame. God never promises ease or comfort to any of us. So, Merry Christmas. Have a good day. (laughs) I just want to probe this 
Because I want to get it, like, it's hard for some of us to celebrate Christmas because we live from this imminent frame and we can't access the mystery and wonder of what actually happened in the incarnation. When we don't have the incarnation as the center point of our story and we lack celebrating mystery and wonder, we just hit Christmas and it's all about materialism. The world says that if we buy this or drive this or give this to our relatives, that life is gonna be great. And we, we are left wondering, why can't I fully enter into this? It's because the entire framework of this world is meant to pull you into the material, consumeristic here and now. And what we have to do is recover wonder. We have to recover the reenchantment of Christmas, okay? So the Bible, contrast this with scriptural narrative. The Bible assumes that the world is mysterious and magical at the same time. It doesn't apologize for it. Scripture just takes it as it is, that God exists and you can't encapsulate him in any kind of like church four walls or any kind of creed. He is mysterious. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And that creator and sustainer of all things fit into a human body in the form of a baby. And that sounds impossible, doesn't it? And yet the scripture makes no apologies for any kind of miraculous things that God does like that. Take, for instance, Egypt and the Exodus. After God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, he gathers them all at Mount Sinai in order to give them their national identity as his people. He worked wonders in order for them to be released. And God was showing them again his power to further drive home the point that he is God and he will continue to protect and provide for them. But this causes concern. This God that that unleashed the plagues on Egypt to bring Pharaoh to his knees is now supposed to protect them? We don't know this God very well. We're not used to this idea of God very well. At Sinai, Moses delivers to the people the Ten Commandments and then And yet, they have a different reaction to the receiving of those that he does delivering them. It says this in Exodus 20, 18, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and Moses said, and said to Moses, speak to us yourselves and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. There's a contrast that Moses presses in to the mystery and the wonder of God and the people are concerned and fearful and stay far away. The the power and the wonder of God's presence created this distance between God and people. On the one hand, it was good. They understood what he was capable of. There was a healthy respect, which is what the fear of the Lord means. It's a healthy respect for God's honor and glory and power. But it had a downside. A greater distance was established between them and God. We understand the Israelites' concern, right? Their reaction. Something in us believes it's better for all those super special holy people to talk to God for us. I mean, when we have, you know, babies to feed and lawns to mow and, and, and code to, to code and, and all the things in our practical everyday lives, why don't we just let some pastors talk to God and bring us back just the bullet points so we can just have the bare minimum, what we need to do to please God, be on his good side, and get on with our lives? 
there's a part of us that understands that. And yet, it would create a big problem for us if we continue to give ourselves to that. This distance, whether intentional or not, works against our purpose and our design. From the moment of our creation, we were meant to dwell with God in his presence. He made us for companionship. He made us to be with him. God's presence has always been the answer to the mundane parts of life. His spirit is with us and we have a privileged connection to God that breaks down the hardness and the dullness of our lives. So if we don't press in and become close to God, we'll give in to this dullness, this boredom, and this hardness of heart. It's his presence that causes our heart to tenderize. So we want to be with him more. It's like hunger for God is the only thing that can't be satiated. Hunger for God is the only thing that makes you more hungry for itself. And that's the purpose. You were created with a daily, everyday moment connection with God. That's that's what Adam and Eve experienced before the fall. The fall separated us. And since even before the fall, God has set up a plan so that he could reconcile us back to himself and draw us near to him. And so what we see in the Old Testament are these steps towards the fullness of God dwelling again with humanity. We see this in the tabernacle. We see this in the temple. We see this in God sending his presence and the pillar of fire, the cloud of smoke, things like that, that he's slowly reintroducing his presence and calling out a people that could steward the presence so that one day he could step back on to to the world scene and be with us totally once again. Carmen Joy Imes, in her book, Bearing God's Name, by the way, she's a phenomenal Exodus scholar. She was on the Holy Post this past week. If you're looking for a good podcast to listen to, that's a good one. She's even partnered with a Bible project to uh, do a whole 14-hour series on uh, Exodus. It's wonderful. She says this, The hot spot of Yahweh's presence was hidden in the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, guarded by the outer tent, which only the priests could enter. The entrance to the holy place was further protected by an outer outer boundary of curtains with an entrance near the altar. No toddler could accidentally wander into sacred space and tip over the menorah with its seven burning lamps. No sin-stained Israelite would suffer a violent death by getting too close to God's holy presence. The outer boundary of the tabernacle kept them from danger while enabling them to live in close proximity. The layout of the tabernacle allows them to gaze at Yahweh's glory from a safe distance and have the assurance of his attentive presence without constant fear of ritual violation. Just like the law, the tabernacle offers grace by putting up protective fences. So while we may look at Leviticus and and Exodus and Deuteronomy and say, golly, God, why all these rules? If you want to be with your people, be with your people. But what we fail to understand is no one can stand in God's presence. We would be, be totally glory fried. So he's setting up these rules and these boundaries so that he can come near, but we can be at a safe distance. They could be at a safe distance from him. Because the ultimate plan has been put in place, but not finalized, not realized. So he wants to be close, but he says, but not too close. Oh, it's going to happen. Oh, I want it to happen, but you are not ready for this yet. So stand there and gaze at my glory and we'll be near and there will be a future hope that I'll walk with you once again one day. 
So more than that, God, through the writings of the Old Testament, promised this greater intervention and a time and space when he would come in a greater measure than even the tabernacle or even the temple, even the pillar of, of, of smoke and, and, and cloud of fire, however you say it, both ways, cloud and, 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 and pillar and smoke and fire, all of that. There's, there's something greater than that coming for all of us. He says in Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah in 714, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So the prophet Isaiah was addressing the nation who uh, had allowed their hearts to grow cold toward God, welcomed in compromise into the nation, and then enemy uh, uh, armies were knocking on their door to come and overrun them in battle. And the best thing that God could say at that time with Babylon and Assyria knocking on their door was this. God wasn't going to leave them alone. That He was coming to them and that he would be God with them, God in their midst. He was going to protect them, to cast off their enemies, and as good and as needed as that one uh, was going to be, that he was going to be close to them. The distinguishing mark of his people was that his presence was there, and it wasn't just going to remain, but it would increase. It would bring prosperity, peace, and protection. So when the New Testament writers, so that's, that's the, the, the foretold prophecy of God coming close. And when the New Testament writers were considering their own predicaments, their own nation, and their own lives, they found in these prophecies the promise of a Savior and the ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And we know the, them as the Advent stories we read every year. So fast forward several hundred years Matthew 1, verse 18 says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give the name, him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. They were able to look at that prophecy and say, Jesus is the fulfillment of God being near us, God being with us, God being among us. And God's emergence as Emmanuel even helped them see other prophecies and helps things become more clear to us as we're looking at the Old Testament, how it's foretelling the, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Isaiah 41 verse 9 says this, I took you from the ends of the earth, from the, its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so in the life of Jesus, we see these promises actually be reinterpreted as prophecies as Jesus comes himself to fulfill them in his person and through the work that he does. 
What seems like helpful encouragements at the time are fully realized prophecies through Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the long-hoped-for promise of God. He is the Savior Lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. He's the Messiah who has charged into the darkness of this world and wrestled the keys to the kingdom away from death and darkness. And he welcomes us all to come to him to receive the promise of life in the now and the when to come. There is no other hope that we can, can have outside of Jesus because he has designed us to be most fully alive when we find all of our hopes, dreams, and expectations in him. C.S. Lewis says this, mere Christianity. He says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly. Petrol is like European gas, right? So just so you know. They don't call words the right things over there. I don't know. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. So let's talk about today. How does this affect us? These have three observations. The first is the good news. What is the good news and who is it for? I think it's worth remembering because a lot of times the gospel itself, not, not just the gospel counts, but the good news of Jesus that he has come to take away our sin, reconcile us to himself so that we can spend eternity together. It just feels like when you hear that year after year, time after time, church service after church service, there's something that, that's lost in the saying of that. We become too familiar with it. And I think one way is to reclaim wonder there is to remember that the story was written for us, but not to us or about us. It's hard. Like, let me just say is like majority white church in the center of the United States, mostly middle class, I would assume. We think everything's about us as Americans, it's about us. What's the world doing? I don't know. It's all about us anyway. Like what's trending on Twitter? Mostly like top 10 things that are going on in America, right? We have to remember the scripture was not written to us or for us or, or about us. It's, it's for us, but we are not centered in the story. Jesus is. Israel is. The worldwide global historic church is centered not Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, right? And it's good to remember that. Brian Zunn says this, my problem with the Bible. I have a problem with the Bible. Here's my problem. I am an ancient Egyptian. I'm a comfortable Babylonian. I'm a Roman in his villa. That's my problem. See, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported from Babylon. I'm not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. I'm a citizen of a superpower. Have you ever thought about that? I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire. But I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me. This is a problem. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true, except... In the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. And if you're having trouble connecting with the gospel, maybe 
It's because you're actually on top. You actually, what you have to lose when you go, ah, what's, what's the importance of the gospel? It sets the captives free. And if you don't know why the, the scripture and why the gospel matters, maybe you don't see yourself as in bondage. What I do every time I preach is try and, and read the culture, exegete the culture so that we go, this is what everything around us points to. We are captive. We are oppressed, not in the same way as the recipients of the scripture, but we mostly set on top of the pyramid, of the hierarchy. So we have to remember and get in touch with our deep need for God. And we have to celebrate along with those who have been set free. We have to sometimes remember what it's like to be set free in order to appreciate it as it needs to be to reclaim this kind of wonder. It may be that if we find the Bible and the gospel in particular boring, we actually might be getting all the advantages of from sitting in our places of comfort and of power. And it may be that God is asking us to give those things up, the things that we find meaning in, success and purpose in, in order to be set free from the cultural narrative that we're, we're bound to. Okay. Second is mystery and wonder. Contrary to what the Enlightenment Project has taught us, our hearts actually functions best when there's mystery involved. I, I agree with Ted Lasso when he said, uh, be curious, not judgmental. Be curious. You can only be curious when you don't have all the information. You can only give yourself to wonder when you're settled and you don't need all the details. To actually see Christmas re-enchanted is to say, I don't understand it all. And I'm, I'm risking looking stupid or gullible or ignorant, and I still choose to believe in God. I still choose to believe in the incarnation, even though I understand none of the physics of that. Like, have you ever taken, well, have, you know, we have all these squirrels. We have like an army of squirrels in our neighborhood. Have you ever gone out like late summer to like a, like a pot out in your, on your patio or something and a squirrel has hidden a bunch of nuts? Like, what happens if you continue to let that oak grow there? Next summer, you're going to have to pick up shatters of, of a pot, right? The thing is going to outgrow the pot. Like, tell me how God fit in a baby. And the baby didn't, like, split like a, like a, like a pot with an oak tree growing. How, how did the human frame contain God? How did that work? I don't understand any of that. And that's the mystery and the wonder of it, right? That God came and he put on human form. And today at the right hand of God the Father, there's a human being standing there. Jesus is forever a human being. He's forever a man standing at the right hand of the Father. I understand none of that and I love all of it. To me, that's Christmas. That's Christmas right there, okay? So there's a, there's a, I don't know, a reading, a, a, I don't know, even know what to call it. I love to read this uh, when I remember to during Christmas time. This is written by St. Alphonse de Liguori. Listen to the curiosity. Listen to the wonder in this. My Jesus, supreme and true God, what has drawn thee from heaven to be born in a cold stable, if not the love which thou bearest us men? What has allured thee from the bosom of thy father to place thee in a hard manger? 
What has brought thee from thy throne above the stars to lay thee down in a little straw? What has led thee from the midst of the nine choirs of angels to set thee between two animals? Thou who inflamest the seraphim with holy fire are now shivering with cold in this stable. Thou who settest the stars in the sky in motion canst not now move unless others carry thee in their arms. Thou who givest men and beasts their food has need now of a little milk to sustain thy life. Thou who are the joy of heaven dost now whimper and cry in suffering. Tell me, who has reduced thee to such misery? Love has done it, says St. Bernard. The love which thou bearest us men has brought all this on thee. Just the wonder of that. Like, how did that happen? Who could have possibly dreamt that up? And Jesus did it. It was the love that he has for us that caused us to cause him to come and be in our midst. As we look at the wonder of Jesus, he awakens more wonder in us. As we look at these stories, as we look at writings like that, there is an awakening of mystery and wonder as we sit, as we ponder. It's actually a biblical principle. Uh, some called it the beholding and becoming principle. Second Corinthians 3.18 says this, We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit. That What that means is when we take time and effort to set aside prayer and contemplation, to look at the mystery of God through the scriptures and just wonder along with him, how did you do this? How will this work out? I don't understand it. God will actually create more hunger in you for wonder. You can actually ask him, God, blow my mind. I want to understand, but I want my mind to be blown even more. I want mystery to to be deeply seated into my heart because I want to appreciate you, God. You can ask him for that, and he will give it to you. When you just with consistency, it might be weakness, it might be brokenness, but when you just reach towards him with that, he is faithful and he is true to give what you ask. Because you're asking to be satisfied in him, totally with him. How could he resist, right? And then thirdly, so after we talk about the wonder of the gospel, the good news, mystery and wonder being awakened in our hearts we can only give that away to, we can only but help to give that away to other people. When God pours himself out into you, you can only look to give it away. That's what love is. It's self-giving towards others. And so as you show up, maybe even over the next couple of weeks, be attentive to what God is doing. Be attentive to what he's doing at your family gatherings and the meals, you know, where grandpa's passed out after too much football or Hallmark movie channel, no judgment here. Like, be curious. You can even ask God, what are you doing right now? What are you doing in my family's house? What are you up to? Who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to serve? Now, I know as soon as I say that, the introverts go, hold on a second. They're lucky I'm even there. I stink at small talk. And I tell you, I understand that. But you've been divinely set up. Do you know what happens every week when you come to church? We feed you lines to give to one another, to do small talk well. And then we give you a few minutes to practice. Every week, we teach you how to talk to each other. Isn't that amazing? Like, I know uh, consultants will tell church leaders, like, people hate mingle time. 
But that's okay with me because we're reforming you. When our world is so used to being behind a screen, like if you want to talk to somebody, you don't even call them anymore because that's insane. Who's calling me right now? Like, do they not like me? Am I in trouble? That's what you think, right? I don't know that number. How'd they get my number? Who are they? You text people. It's soulless. It's, it's faceless. And what we're doing every week is reclaiming small talk for the glory of Jesus. It's called the ministry of presence. And if you want to know how to do it, all you have to do this weekend is go to Uncle Bill and go, hey, Uncle Bill, what advice would you give to ten, your 10-year-old self? And then you just listen. That's it. That's it. That's all you do. Go eat a sandwich or something while he's talking. That's all you do to be present with people. And we do that, again, because God was first present with us. He first came toward us when we wanted nothing to do with him. And if we really get that, and the wonder and the mystery of why me, why that way, why the incarnation, we can only help but be present in other people's lives. And this church should be the best at it on the face of the planet, because we do it every week. And we do it well. I know, because I come up with the questions. They're good questions. I have an app that helps me that uh, Lacey Dunn gave me. It works. So there you go. (laughs) So um, in all, and I'm going to have the worship team come up. In all of this, I do think it's important to recover and reclaim an enchanted Christmas. Not just because we're just going to be happy or, you know, it's the reason for the season or we don't want to be labeled a Scrooge. But I do believe God is in seasons of the church calendar like this, where, like Ben was saying, there's a tension between grief, the grief of what's not happened yet, but also the joy of what God has done already. And I, I just, one quote I want to leave you with is, is from John Wesley. Throughout his life, if you don't know much about John Wesley, he, uh, God allowed him to instigate, to initiate, like, hundreds, if not thousands, of new church plants. Like He, he uh, oversaw one of the fastest church planting discipleship movements the face of the planet has ever seen. Uh, he preached the, the first great awakening and saw just thousands of people. He would go out to like the fields and preach to the coal miners. And he saw thousands of people come to Jesus. He saw thousands of even like miracles when God would show up and healings and deliverance and, and just things that he couldn't even imagine. And at the end of his life, on his deathbed, it's recorded. In light of all the, the big, meaningful things, all the things that he could hold on to and not want to let go of, what he said was this. The best of all is, God is with us. A man who had seen like just the heights of fame for his time. Wonderful movements of God happening at the, at, at the reach of his fingertips. And what he left his loved ones and his family and, and, and those a part of the Methodist movement was this. The best thing that there is is that God is with us. So what I want to invite you to do this week, as you're just thinking about Christmas, you're maybe mourning and grieving and you're maybe celebrating and enjoying. How can I become more curious and cultivate wonder in my life? I really do think that's important for us at this cultural moment that we're in. Why don't you stand with me? Uh, the worship team's gonna get ready to, to lead out uh, a couple more songs In this moment, what I would like to do, I just want to pray for us. And you can even hold this question out in front of you. God, how can I be better at wonder? How can I embrace mystery? However that you need to say that for yourself. So why don't don't you let me pray for you? Bow your heads. So Father, 
Thank you, Jesus, for the incarnation. Thank you for becoming human, for coming close and being with us. Jesus, we want to know more. We want to understand more, but not at the sacrifice of mystery, curiosity, and wonder, God. So help grow that that part of us and even help that part of us that wants to be in control, wants to be certain, wants to know everything. Help us to be surrendered in that area to God. Help us to be curious about people around us, their life stories, how you're showing up in their lives. Help us to be curious and full of wonder at our family and friend gatherings. Help us to put ourselves out there and and even just partner with you about what you're already doing in those spaces, God. So God, at the end of the day, the end of the message, what we want is to make us more, make us wonder more about the scripture, about you, and about you, Jesus. I pray this in your name, amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.